for Taisho today, the 11th of July, 2023. We're going to look at um, taking the precepts, the Bodhisattva precepts. This ceremony is happening on Saturday, um, late afternoon, evening, and um, usually I spend several Taishos um, looking at the precepts, but this year we just have, have one, so it'll be quite compressed. Um, but hopefully helpful to people who may be um, considering coming to Jukai for the first time, and hopefully something for people who have done it many times as well. I've been reading a book um, by Reb Anderson called Being Upright, Zen Meditation and the Bodhisattva Precepts, and he's says something at the beginning which I think we can all take to heart. He says, for the Zen practitioner, the Bodhisattva precepts are not a side issue. They are at the core of the process of awakening. The core of the process of awakening. Not something extra, but, but something really fundamental. He also says, the 16 great bodhisattva precepts are the gate to authentic Zen practice. They offer a way to bring the stillness and silence of sitting into active expression in everyday affairs, a way for compassion to enter all aspects of our lives. They are the life vein of upright sitting. These precepts are intended for those who dedicate their lives to the liberation of all living beings. Shakyamuni Buddha and his successors agree that these precepts are not just moral or ethical imperatives or orders that are given by someone else and that we're supposed to follow. Rather, they are a map of the Buddha's world and through them we can realize ourselves as Buddha. We'll, we'll be um, looking at the ceremony and um, what it refers to in the light of this statement. Um, a way for compassion to enter all aspects of our lives. The, the precepts are really where we get um, guidance on, on how to, to, to bring Buddha Dharma into our everyday lives. And compassion is really at the core of this. Kai is, um, is a kind of renewal. It's something we, we don't necessarily only do once, but, but many times to, to renew our commitment because we're all, always falling short of what our commitment um, aspires to, really, the, the Bodhisattva way. And um, our teacher, Roshi Kohi, would, would recommend 
to people that they that they um, take a shower or a bath before coming to Jukai and, and wear clean clothes. These little things just create a certain feel to the to the ceremony um, and underline the fact that it is an act of, of, of purification and renewal. Here at the centre, the, the evening will commence with zazen from, from four for informal sitting. And this is putting zazen at the front as the, as the opening act of this, this um, ceremony. It's, it's informal so people can come at whatever point they wish to prior to the actual ceremony and um, sit it to one's own rhythm. The, the zendo will be organised differently, we'll have our mats in rows, so uh, for us then we'll all be facing the Buddha. And the Buddha figure itself is, is a reminder of our, of, our, of our noble, virtuous nature that we are uh, manifesting in as much as we put these precepts into practice. Then at 5.30 the ceremony will, will start um, and it begins with the Kanzeon. We just, just chanted a few minutes ago. And say a little about, about this chant. Usually ceremonies don't start with the Kanzeon but with the Heart Sutra. But perhaps because the emphasis in our precepts ceremony is on compassion, loving kindness, it makes sense to have uh, the Kanongyo, the Ten Verse Kanon Sutra first. We say, Kanzeon prays to Buddha, all are one with Buddha, all awake to Buddha, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, eternal, joyous, selfless, pure. Through the day, Kanzeon, through the night, Kanzeon. This moment arises from mind, this moment itself is mind. The, the lines that ju jump out here are, through the day, Kanzeon, through the night, Kanzeon. We're, we're um, taking the, the precepts in order to activate our compassion, to have it um, permeate all aspects of our lives, day and night. One way of interpreting these lines. Or another one, equally valid, is uh, celebrating the presence of Kanon all through the day, all through the night, always there. And these two ways of seeing it are not separate. During this, um, this recitation, the Kananza is just chanting, um, people will be, be coming in and making offerings at the altar, a pinch of, of powdered incense on the, 
on charcoal, one kind of offering, and dana for the teacher um, as well, if one if so wished. Um, this is this is the only one time in a year when when dana is is personally for the teacher for me. And these the powdered incense and the dana are a way of um, expressing gratitude for the teaching. And it, again, doing this, we do, do it often, I guess, in terms of donating, but to do this as a group and to do it physically, again, um, has more power. It doesn't have to be a huge donation, of, of course, just whatever feels appropriate. Uh, it's really uh, symbolic of One's, one's willingness to, to support the teaching. Like everything else, this, there is, the teaching requires um, means for it to go, go ahead. Con um, sanghas require input so that, so that they can happen. So we start with this chanting, this, this effort, this um, emphasis on um, kanon, bodhisattva of compassion, she who hears the cries of the world. You could recall here too that the, the relationship between the word kindness and kin come and do the ceremony with our brothers and sisters in the Dharma and later on we'll hear that the end of, of Jukai we're, we're said to be entering the Buddha's family which again we do over and over after, after the Kanon Sutra then teacher enters and um, purifies the altar with the whisk and then offers incense and does prostrations just as the Sangha has been doing up until this point, offering incense and, and doing a one prostration. Again we might wonder why um, the, the teacher comes after everybody else. We could um, perhaps imagine the, 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 the teacher is a bit like a shepherd. This is an image that's used in Christianity. The shepherd leads from behind. The, the sheep go first. Um, and we could relate that to the Bodhisattva who, who po po postpones his own awakening to guide others first, to guide others across the, to the other shore. Then after these 
offerings at the altar. We do chant Prajnaparamita, which is usually the first chant in the chanting services. And of course, it's a description of Kanon's awakening. Um, some scholars say that Kanon is the one speaking in this sutra. Um, and the, the, the teaching is of form and emptiness. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. This, this is an important teaching to bring to the, the precepts, which we can, we can look at from different angles, which we'll see later. Then the next, the next happening after the, the Prajnaparamita, which really encapsulates so many of the teachings about uh, our school, Zen school, we recite the repentance gutter nine times. All evil actions committed by me since time immemorial, stemming from greed, anger, and delusion, arising from body, speech, and mind, I now repent having committed. And, and framing this, this recitation is... Um, we call on Buddhas and Bodhisattvas to um, witness our rep um, repentance and to help us to, to go beyond it. At one point, this is said, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the past were like us. And we will in the future become Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So that we imagine these uh, Bodhisattvas gathering around as we, as we make this repentance. And we remember that they were like us, in other words, deluded in different kinds of ways. And yet they became Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And we say, and we will in the future become Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. It's powerful encouragement to us. We, we may feel we're constantly falling down in the practice, but this is, this is the path that many others have trodden before us, and, and we can draw on their great wisdom and realization This repentance that we do is, a, in a way, is a, it's a kind of clearing the decks of any any obstructions that might be there. Shanti Deva said, "One law serves to summarize the whole of the Mahayana: the protection of all beings is accomplished through examination of one's own mistakes." So. We see what might be in the way of, of our realizing the precepts and bring them out into the open. Bring, bring them out where they, they uh, can be 
transformed by the light of day become become teachings for us be turned delusion transformed into wisdom in the last update I also um, mentioned Master Sheng Yin's statement that <coughs> the precepts are protective they protect, protect all beings because they create an atmosphere of safety for, for all and they, they protect ourselves as one among many, those many beings because they uh, protect our mind stream from, from becoming defiled or, or, or complex, complexified. Bodhisattvas continuously confess their non-virtue because delusion occurs moment after moment confession must also be moment after moment Bodhisattvas continuously see and admit their own delusions and non-virtuous deeds less enlightened people confess less often the most unenlightened and dangerous people are those who think they never do any non-virtuous deeds at all. The greatest darkness for the human mind is to believe that you never do anything wrong or hurtful or stupid. Conversely, continuous confession of non-virtue opens the gate to great light. Confession of wrongdoing is an act of awakening. A little bit later he says, we human beings are driven by thoughts that we take to be real, conscious and unconscious beliefs of right and wrong, good and bad, and existence and non-existence. In formal confession we admit that we are driven by such thoughts, and at the same time we feel remorse for being driven by, by such thoughts. We admit that we are ordinary human beings without becoming discouraged and giving up our aspiration for enlightenment. When I admit that I am as I am, I allow myself to be so, and I realize that Buddha allows me to be so too. Buddha allows all beings to be just as they are in all their particular and limited ways. Buddha's compassion embraces me just as I am right here and now, just as I am right here and now, with the purity of complete forgiveness. There's some sense in which we need to uh, accept ourselves right where we are in order to to repent, to to express our regret. Admitting who you are, you are purified. Being purified, you can now go home to awakening. Right away, you are rewarded for your honesty. You can go back to perfect awakening. Again, saying this, this repentance is like clearing the decks. You forgot for a moment that you were driven by vain, empty thoughts and that you moved away from your home through that forgetfulness. The further you get from being ordinary, the harder it is for you admit, to admit who you are. 
the less that you admit who you are, the more you feel unforgiven and trapped in who you are. And the further you feel from the Buddha's compassion, distance from yourself is distance from Buddha's compassion. So opening ourselves up, asking the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas for their help um, can be transformative. end of the repentance we say freed from past defilements and harmful actions this is how we how we aim to take the, the 16 bodhisattva precepts recognizing our, our past harmful actions and releasing them renouncing them Best we can. Then we take, um, we, we receive the, the 16 precepts, each of them um, three times. We, we do things in, in Zen three times that are important and we want to make sure that they, they sink right in because the first and second times we don't be, may not be fully present with what we're saying but by the third time we should really be fully engaged with what we're saying. So we could probably spend whole whole Tasha talking just about the three treasures. So again we'll, we'll just be touching on some points. Um, the, the three refuges, the three the three treasures, the three jewels are really fundamental. We find them in in all schools of Buddhism pretty sure um, and they and out of these three which we'll go into in a minute the others emerge the three general resolutions emerge from the, the three refuges and then the ten precepts from the from the general resolutions it's kind of um, fleshing out of the the general resolutions but let me just read a little bit from, this is from the Three Pillars of Zen, um, about the different aspects of the three treasures which we take, take refuge in. And these are called, in Japanese, they're called Itai Sambo, the, the unified three treasures. The unified three treasures consist of the Buddha Virachana, representing the realization of the world of emptiness, of Buddha nature, of unconditioned equality. Second, the Dharma, the law of beginningless and endless becoming, to which all phenomena are subject according to causes and conditions. And third, the harmonious fusion 
of the preceding two, which constitutes total reality as experienced by the enlightened. So these are the, the most um, fundamental, the deepest way to understand the, the three treasures. Realization, the laws of the universe, and the harmony, harmonious fusion of these two. Then we have the manifested three treasures. The first of the manifested three treasures is the historic Shakyamuni, who through his perfect enlightenment realized in himself the truth of the unified three treasures, Itai Sambo. The second is the Dharma, which comprises the spoken words and sermons of Shakyamuni Buddha, wherein he elucidated the significance of the unified three treasures and the way to its realization. The third includes the immediate disciples of the Buddha Shakyamuni and the other followers of the day who heard, believed, and made real in their own bodies the Itai Sambo that he taught. So the, the manifested three treasures all refer to um, the historical Buddha and his teaching and his followers. And then finally, the abiding three treasures. And we, we might not be aware of this when we think of the three treasures, but the, the third aspect of the three treasures is artwork, the iconography of Buddhas, which have come down to us. Buddha figures, um, paintings, could even include um, architecture in here. The iconography that is an expression, expression of the teaching. These are treasures. The second of these is the, the written sermons and discourses of the Buddha. In other words, the sutras and the shastras and the vinaya, all of these are where we can find out about the teachings of the Buddha. And then the third part of this, this abiding three treasures was um, contemporary disciples who practice and realize the saving truth of the Itai Sambo as it was first revealed to Shakyamuni Buddha. But that's us. We are part of the third, this third aspect of the three treasures. When we, when we, when we practice together, we're um, realizing the abiding three treasures. Keep, keeping this mind in mind, remembering it, may, may subtly change the ways that we interact with each other.
moving on from these rich and layered three refuges or treasures to the three general, general resolutions, which are very simple and straightforward. To do no harm, to do good, to liberate all living beings. We can read these as a kind of pro progression. To do no harm is the bare minimum, but there's more which we can do. We can do good, we can be of benefit. And then the ultimate is the third one, to liberate all living beings. This is our bodhisattvas of our stated very simply, to do what we can to ferry beings across to the shore of enlightenment by sharing with them this, this liberating teaching of the Itai Sambo. And we can help in as much as we realize that teaching for ourselves. Finally, we come to the ten cardinal precepts. And I'll say a little bit about them in general and then just look at a couple briefly. The first five of the ten are um, probably pretty much common to all schools of Buddhism. And all of the all of the ten, the first five and the second five, are formulated um, in terms of what to avoid. Um, the the second half of each of the precepts in our rendering of them was added by Roshi Katra and others um, to make them more positive. Um, you think of it, a, a negative formulation is, is just tells you what to not do, but the, the more positive interpretation of each precept was added. Um, this wasn't the first time there were lists, lists of, of virtues. Um, you can just kind of find these slightly different content to the second five, but you find them in Vajrayana Buddhism, something like the, the ten virtuous behaviors. Let me just to go through them. not to kill, not to take what is not given, to not engage in harmful sexual relations, not to lie, uh, not to cause others to take intoxicants nor to do so oneself, um, not to gossip about others' faults or praise my, oneself. not to withhold spiritual material aid, uh, not to indulge in anger, and not to revile the three treasures, but to cherish and uphold them. 
which of course brings us back around to the first three. Uh, so these are uh, have this uh, circular quality to them. So as I say, not time enough to go into each each one of these, which is a probably a, a whole tasha in itself, but just. Um, some, some stories and some comments about a couple of them that are interrelated. Over the years, um, I would say that, that there are three of these precepts that people would tell me that they struggled with um, by far the most compared with other, the other precepts. And they are the ones to do with kind speech, are not to gossip about the faults of others and not to praise oneself, so six and seven. And the other one that people have a really hard time with is number nine, not to indulge in anger. Um, another sort of way of interpreting these precepts is either from the conventional side or from the, the absolute side. The conventional side is side where there, there, the, there is reference to self and other, good and bad, right and wrong, and then there's this other aspect of each of these precepts which transcends these. And we have to be careful here that, that the, the relative or the conventional side is very well understood uh, before we venture into talking about the absolute, because there's a danger with this. We can have sort of statement where somebody says, oh, there's no mine or yours, therefore I'm justified in taking what you have. And the precepts is to respect the property of others. What's, what's, what's wrong with that, of course, is that it's true that there's no, there's no, nothing is owned by anybody, but that's equally so of the person who's stealing as it is of the person they're stealing from. No more justification for, for that um, act. There are, there are uh, other reasons why somebody might steal that might be mitigating factors such as hunger or poverty but still will be in, in the conventional world if one takes the property of others, one sets oneself up for all kinds of problems. But what I want to look into a little bit is, these, is this, this precept of, on kind speech. And related on not indulging in anger. And In our, in our research for the, the Diamond Sutra, we learned this story about Sabuti, who is the, the main character in, in the Diamond Sutra. And this relates to his life before he joined the Sangha. As a child, Subhuti was so attractive and intelligent that his parents had high hopes for him and took great care in his upbringing. 
but as he grew older, people came to dislike him. Even neighbors who had formerly been friendly would frown at the very sight of him. This was due to his habit of speaking ill of everyone he encountered. After a while, his anger was directed not only at human beings, but at other creatures as well. He even hurled stones and curses at birds in the sky. His parents and relatives could do nothing to control his raging. After a series of quarrels with his mother and father, one day a reprimand of theirs caused Subuti to run away from home. He dashed into the nearby mountains and refused to return. But the quiet of the forest and mountains did not calm his anger. Stamping on the ground and throwing stones at birds, he moved deeper and deeper into the woods. Suddenly he was surprised by the abrupt appearance of an old man who asked gently, Why have you come alone into this forest? Subuti retorted brusquely, Everyone makes a fool of me. Today my father scolded me and made me so angry that I ran away from home. But this, the old man remained quite calm and, and just said, being angry without doing good will only increase your suffering. It cannot benefit you in any way. And then he told Subhuti about the Buddha who was teaching quite nearby. And his kind, gentle words were, not, were enough for Subhuti to be able to recognize that he was pretty fed up with this vicious cycle he had got himself into of being shunned by others because of his anger and then taking their attitude as, as a cause for his further irritation. So he decided he'd take the old, old man's advice and, advice and go and seek out the Buddha, which he did. And when the, then when the, the moment was right, he approached the Buddha and asked him if he could join the, the Sangha. And Shakyamuni took one look at him and said, short temper is clearly written on your face. There is no room for irritability in the discipline of a monk's life. You must have patience and forbearance. Do you think you can develop these traits? And Subhuti didn't say anything. Buddha continued, if you are constantly angry without trying to alter your mental attitude, evil will increase day by day until finally the very deeds of goodness will disappear. An irascible man's anger makes him suffer the torments of hell, since he is constantly poisoning his own mind with a venom that leads to fault finding and killing. He shuts himself up in his own suffering until ultimately he is unable to find a way out of it. And it really was of some sense of, of Subhuti was on his way, at least, to painting himself into this kind of corner. Uh, and it's, a, it's an example here of how um, the precepts can be um, protective, if they can be like flags to tell us when when we're um, heading in the wrong direction, heading in direction will only cause us more suffering. And of course, Subhuti became 
um, the the disciple foremost in in uh, understanding of emptiness, which would surely have been a great antidote to his to his um, bad temper. Let's talk a bit more about about anger and hatred. That the teaching in the Mahayana tradition is that that um, anger is, is a particularly um, st- stemming stemming from the the poison of, of hatred is is particularly um, dangerous. Number, but I'll see if I can find it. Um, there's another there's a, a sutra when the, when the, the, where in which this is expressed very aptly. It's something I had not come across before, but it's very it seems a very important thing for us to remember. teaching of Mahayana Buddhism, the teaching of Zen, is teaching of love, not hate. Inappropriate anger is completely antithetical to the way of the Bodhisattva. It can be the source of violating all the other precepts. When we are angry, we might even think of killing those who are most precious to us. When we are angry, we might think of stealing something we don't really want just to hurt somebody. We might lie, even when it brings us no gain personally. When we are angry, we can become angry at goodness itself. And he he um, tells the story of from a uh, Maharatnakuta Sutra, in which um, a monk called Upali asked the um, Buddha. Um, well done of one. Suppose a bodhisattva breaks a precept out of desire. Another does so out of hatred, and still another does so out of ignorance. Well done of one. Which of the three offences is the most serious? And the Buddha re- replied, Upali. If a bodhisattva continues to break precepts, out of desire for kalpas as numerous as the sands of the Ganges, his offence is still minor. If a bodhisattva breaks precepts out of hatred, even just once, his offence is very serious. Why? Because a bodhisattva who breaks precepts out of desire still holds sentient beings in his embrace. Whereas a bodhisattva who breaks precepts out of hatred forsakes sentient beings altogether. Upali, a bodhisattva should not be afraid of the passions which can keep him hold, which can help him hold sentient beings in his embrace, but he should fear the passions which can cause him to forsake sentient beings. This is something we can we can remember when we when we. Um, 
find ourselves um, irritated. to not reject any being, to, to develop real forbearance and patience in relation to um, things we find annoying, um, to tolerate small things, um, small transgressions we could say, and to cut off um, anger as quickly as we can. Well, our time is nearly up. Um, just finish up here. The ceremony after the third time through all the precepts. Um, teacher says. We are all now members of the Buddha's family and then we all bow together. That bow is, is a physical way of expressing our, our kinship, being all members of one family. And the echo that follows starts, homage to all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, homage to the living Sangha and the Ten Directions, so forth, along homage to the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. We, here we're again taken back, circling back to the beginning when we invoked these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas to help us overcome our, our defilements or our shortcomings. Now we're, we're um, paying homage to them celebrating them, bowing down to them, um, grateful for these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas ancestors for having transmitted the precepts to us. And then last but not least, we end with the four vows, our actual Bodhisattva vows, our, our commitment, our intention. Perhaps not perfect commitment or perfect realization, but sincere wish to realize the, the, the bodhisattvic vow in our lives, to awaken for the sake of all, in order to help others to awaken. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I bow to liberate endless blind passions. I bow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I bow to penetrate.
Oh, oh.